Grift listeners, this is the producer, Odelia Rubin. These past couple months, I've been working really hard on a new show at Panoply called Family Ghosts, and I'm here with the host, Sam Dingman, to talk with you about it. Hello, Grift listeners. Thank you for having me here in your feed. I just want to say I'm a huge fan of The Grift, and thank you, Odelia, for all of you and the team's amazing work on this show. I really think that fans of The Grift will be family ghost fans because what we do on our show is we investigate myths and legends that have hung around families for generations and look at the long-term psychological impact of these myths on one member of that family in particular. Every episode, we follow a member of a different family and tell their story in a completely different style. I think it will appeal to Grift fans because, like The Grift, our show is primarily concerned with people who it's very easy to write off as anomalies, but actually have their own very particular form of humanity that is at once extremely challenging and extremely compelling. So, the episode that we're going to play for you today is called Sue's Clues, and this is an episode where someone dies and his daughter steals the body and hides it from the rest of her family who haven't done anything about that for 23 years until this episode of Family Ghosts, when they decide to. So we really, really hope you enjoy it. And if you do, please go over to Apple Podcasts or whatever you use to listen to podcasts, search for our show, Family Ghosts, and subscribe. Hope you like it. Greetings, ghost family. Welcome to Family Ghosts. So, I'm sitting at my desk at my old job when I get a text from my friend Nick Markovich. And the text says, Hey, want to take off work tomorrow and be one of my lifelines on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? I'll give you half of whatever I win. Our next contestant is from Croton on Hudson, New York. Please welcome Nick Markovich! At the time, I was an administrative assistant, and my job the next day was to hand out lanyards at an all-day strategy summit about digital advertising. And for reasons still unknown to me, I chose that over going with Nick to hang out with Terry Crews. All right, Nick Markovich has walked with $68,600. Thank God everybody at that summit got a lanyard. A few months ago, I received another text from Nick, indicating that he had a pitch he thought might work for family ghosts. To quote from the message, My grandfather's body is missing because my aunt stole it. Let's see. I mean, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in treat yourself mode. You know my, you know my vacation style, but I'll I'll leave a call to you. So, having learned by now that when Nick sends a text, there's usually a good story not far behind. I met him at a restaurant and asked him to expand on his message. You want to do that apple crisp? Yeah. So we did that crisp. And while we did, Nick explained that what he said in the message is basically all he knows. When his grandfather died, his aunt took possession of the body and, well, it somehow vanished. And it's been eating at Nick, not to mention the rest of his family, for years. No one in my family knows where he is. So we can't pay our respects. And we know he ended up in the family plot. We don't know where she put him. I hate to go all Fargo on this, but we don't know if she put him in a wood chopper. 
I, I, I say I'm joking about this because it's so absurd, but it's it also hurts because I have very much love for my grandfather. Um, is that help? This is amazing. Okay. I have so many questions. Okay. Sure. I'll bet you can guess what my first question was. Have you asked your aunt? But the aunt is unfortunately dead. And when she died, she took the answers to the other questions with her. So this week on the show, we're going to try to find Nick's grandpa. From Panoply, you're listening to Family Ghosts. I'm Sam Dingman, and this is Episode 3, Sue's Clues. My apple crisp conversation with Nick had yielded plenty of intrigue, but not much in the way of facts. All I knew so far was this. I've got a missing grandfather's body, stolen following said grandfather's death in 1994. We have no proof that the body still exists, or if it does, where. I also know that Nick's grandfather was also named Nick. Nick Montalbano was his full name. My friend Nick was actually named after his grandfather. I never really liked my name, but I like that it's his name. I don't love it independently of that, but since I love him and I love that I carry it from him, I love that part of it. Now, it occurs to me that both of them having the same first name could get extremely confusing. So, the first step in the investigation is to decide what to call the grandfather. Let's go with Big Nick. We'll call my friend Nick Marco from now on, since that's what I actually call him in real life sometimes. So, Big Nick is the missing grandpa. Marco is my friend Nick who won a bunch of money on a game show. Good. The final apple crisp fact that I got from Marco is that Big Nick taught him how to shave and also how to drive, which are the kinds of seemingly innocuous yet incredibly formative things that make grandpas feel like kindly old wizards. It's like they know the ancient spells of adulthood, and they bestow them upon you when they deem you worthy of the knowledge. That's it. That's everything we know about this case. It's not a lot to go on. So, Family Ghost producer Jason DeLeon and I decide to meet Marco in Tampa, where he's from, to do a little fact-finding. Wait, right. does the recording start now? Is everything on the record at starting, like, time zero? Well, <laughs> I think what's going to be good is, you know, we'll get the sound of... Oh, closing the trunk, getting in the car and everything. Our first stop in Tampa is Cindy Markovich, daughter of Big Nick, mother of Marco. And when you first meet Cindy, you know right away what type of mom she is. Hello. Hey, hello. hello. This is Jason. She greets Nick with a barrage of kisses and saves a few for Jason and me as well. <laughs> Tell your boy. Come Good on to- in! As we walk into the big, bright kitchen of Cindy's house and set up our mics on the table, she brings over two framed portraits of her father and sets them up flanking my recorder. It's like she's preparing for an audio wake. I'm honestly surprised by how excited she seems, especially considering the way Marco told me she usually gets when he brings up the grandpa question. It's a gesture of dismissal, but it's dismissal based in frustration. Yeah. And he's like, ah, I don't need to hear about whatever. So it's like you wave your hand, you make some kind of, like, static white noise. For what it's worth, Marco says his mom got this gesture from Big Nick, who used to do it whenever anyone in the family would attempt to introduce him to a newfangled idea. 
This gesture I've seen used for everything from, hey grandpa, there's no need to get up and change the channel on the television manually. Now we have a remote control. Yeah! Big Nick, we learn, had no use for the newfangled. Cindy told us he liked to keep it simple. No, you're either right or you're wrong. You're either full of shit or you're not full of shit. Yeah, that was Grandpa's line in the sand. It's like if Grandpa were a flowchart, is this person I'm meeting full of shit or not full of shit? And then that's 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 how it was. Simply put, Big Nick had a code, a simple code perhaps, but a code nonetheless. I think he was one of those guys to where just working, providing, having a family, and like simple, you know, watching the Met game, like. Yeah. And I don't at all mean this disparaging, but he wasn't like a super intellectual, so he didn't struggle with questions of existence and purpose. He was just happy. So, fact one. Big Nick was a pretty easygoing dude, though that wasn't necessarily everybody's first impression of him. We also talked to Marco's dad, who will never forget the first time he met Big Nick. Cindy and I were met and were with one another, and um, one thing led to the other, and we were going to have you. Fact two, Marco's dad describes sex in the most awkward dad way ever. Anyway, as he was saying. I was scared to death of him because of his ties <laughs> to Brooklyn and the family and all that stuff. We weren't married. I didn't know what was going to happen to me. I thought he would really, like, just take <laughs> care of me. And, um, but that's not what happened. I remember going and telling him that, you know, we were going to get married and, and have, um, have a child right away. And I'll never forget that. He was just sitting in his car and just leaning back. And uh, like I said, I, I, I feared the worst. But <laughs> when I went to talk to him, he was, just, he was just crying like a baby. So we had you. We told him we were going to name him after him. And then I could do no wrong. <laughs> could absolutely do no wrong. So a bit of a power move, making Marco's dad walk out to the car for this conversation. Which got us thinking. What about those mafia connections that Nick's dad not so subtly alluded to? I was scared to death of him because of his ties <laughs> to Brooklyn and the family and all that stuff. We tried to get answers out of everyone we met. I mean, he was a union guy. Yeah, he definitely had connections. I'm not saying he never resorted to, you know, below-board tactics. I have heard those stories. <laughs> I did not think that was coming up. But we didn't get very far. Fact three... Big Nick may or may not have been in the Mafia. Which, I suppose, is actually true of everybody. So, not exactly a useful fact in our investigation. No matter. The mystery of Big Nick's connections isn't the one we're here to solve. We're trying to figure out what happened after he died. A mission which comes into focus when Cindy tells us about the last time she ever heard her father's voice. The day before he died, he left me a voicemail. We had the answering machines with the micro cassettes, and I was out, and I came home, and the thing was blinking, and he left me a voicemail, and, I, and he knew he was going to die, and it was, a uh, Cindy, I love you very much, and I don't remember the rest of it, because I haven't listened to it since that first time, because he died the next day. You still have it? I just looked, I found it, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Huh. But I can't find the micro cassette. Rec- I have a recorder, but I can't find it, but I found the tape, so I could give it to you to take home, but don't lose it. Yeah, sure. There, okay? guard, it, guard it with my life. Yeah. That's heavy. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, he did die the next day. But um, it's, it's amazing how people know they're going to die. Big Nick may have known he was about to die, but he had no idea what was going to happen afterwards. I guess no one does. But in most cases, 
it's reasonable to assume that your family is going to do certain things. And as we now understand, that's how Big Nick liked it. Reasonable. Uncomplicated. Which made his relationship with his oldest daughter, Susan, anything but. She was always causing some kind of commotion in the house. And my father and she, oil and water, oil and water. And he's Italian. He's like, I would get kids like this. And the hippies. And <laughs> yeah, Grandpa would not have been leading any type of uh, hippie protest <laughs> right? marches. He the guys was... used to come over with the hair. Get them out of here. <laughs> yep, that sounds right. <laughs> So that was a big, a big flashpoint between them. Was like they used to call them your intelligence, your friends. You said they, they, they don't know what they're talking. They're gonna lead you down the path of the wrong. And she'd say, oh, "You're just so stupid." Susan, or Aunt Sue, as Marco knew her, is, as far as we know, the one who swiped Big Nick's body. She's the aunt Marco told me about over Apple Crisp, and Cindy corroborated that account. I don't know if Pat, Pat's my other sister, acquiesced too much or Sue manipulated Pat and Wayne. I don't know. But somehow she got the body. So, fact four. Aunt Sue is our perp. Now, we'll get to Pat and Wayne in a second. But first, some context on Cindy's claim that Sue was a manipulator. The dynamic is such between the three sisters, or was such and you know Susan's deceased and she was the oldest, that we were taught to give in to her, um, more or less at all costs, because she, well, she was always what my mother called high-strung. And my mother, very protective of her and all of us, but mostly her because she saw her as disturbed, wanted us always to give in to her. So we probably did that too often. What Cindy's mom called high-strung would later turn out to be full-blown mental illness. But in her younger days, before everybody realized that, they just thought Sue was exasperating. She'd bring her intelligentsia friends over to the house and lecture everyone about how Richard Nixon was ruining the country, which, as we've learned, is not the kind of thing that meshed well with Big Nick's worldview. But then, the situation went from exasperating to dangerous. In the early 1970s, when Sue was in her mid-20s, she developed a drug problem. And, and that was around the time she had started seeing some motorcycle freak with a bandana who was equally strange. In fact, he brought Pat for her birthday a box of live crabs, and she opened the box and they jumped out at her. <laughs> what? Anyway, so he was bad news, and my mother couldn't even tolerate this one. But I think he got her taking hard drugs, and I think that exacerbated her her mental illness. The family convinced Sue to get rid of the motorcycle freak, which she did. But things took another troubling turn. Sue suddenly developed an intense passion for Catholicism. She spent some time living in a convent, and then she started trying to convert the rest of the family. She always had a veil on her head. She's praying day and night, doing the rosaries, telling us all we're going to hell if we don't do this, that, and the other thing. Marco has a cousin named Rob who lived with Sue for a year when Rob was a kid. And Rob told us Sue did her best to turn him into a believer. I don't want to say suspiciously into Jesus, but man, I remember me having that stuff pushed on me to an extent to where it was like I was collecting like uh, statues of saints. Uh, oh, really? And, yeah. The one I remember 
and I had a lot of these things, is one of them was the Infant of Prague. And I remember thinking that was by far the coolest saint statue. And it's obviously not a saint. But that, was the, that was the gem of the collection. Did you uh, keep, like, sabermetric saint stats, like miracles per game? Or it's anything actually like that? surprising that I, that I didn't. Fact five, the Infant of Prague. Quality sleeper pick for your biblical figure fantasy draft. Fact six, Sue's struggles were hard for the family to process. In the 1980s, her religious fervor eventually gave way to intense bouts of paranoia. She had a lot of CIA plots going on. People I talked to, you know, say she would call in the middle of the night sometimes and say, I have to come over and, and give you a magic um, uh, elixir so that the poison doesn't get you and the CIA is going to kill you. Fact seven. Sue eventually married a kind, soft-spoken man named Henry. And for a while, she was pretty stable. But then she got fixated on the idea that her marriage to Henry was a sham and convinced herself that she was actually leading a double life with her ex-boyfriend, Edward. She started writing the relatives letters saying, I'm, I'm really not married to Henry, I'm married to Edward. God doesn't recognize the marriage to, the marriage to Henry, uh, and I was forced into it. Uh, please come and, uh, to Edward and I, we're going to renew our vows, and our children will be there. There were no children, there was no anything. So she's sending all these letters out to the relatives, she's getting worse and worse and worse. Fact eight. Worse than Marco ever knew. She stabbed somebody in a library. What? You didn't hear this one? No. What? In the Saville Library on Long Island. Because she had an MLS in library sciences. I think she was trying to get a job there. Or she, did, she did have a job there, right? And she got mad at somebody she thought was plotting against her, and she uh, stabbed them. But she didn't hurt them, and the charges were dropped. <laughs> Am I allowed to laugh at this? Yes, you gotta <laughs> laugh. As great a guy as Big Nick was, Sue's illness was more than he could handle. He, he couldn't deal with it. He, he left it to my mother. You know, he loved all of us, but she and he were always oil and water. And uh, he, he wasn't one that lent a lot of credence to mental illness. You know, you, you wake up and you do what you gotta do. It, it hurt him on some level. I'm sure it hurt him on some level that he... he couldn't do anything to straighten her out because he tried in his own way. He'd sit there and once in a while he'd get very serious with her and say, we want to help you, we want to do it. And she'd look at him like, you don't have a clue about anything and leave me alone. Now, there was one other wrinkle in the relationship between Sue and her father. She aspired all her life to be in the, uh, I don't know, the upper crust of intelligentsia. So she kind of, um, Susan used to say when she was in her frank mode, you know, uh, mommy could have done better. She should have married somebody smart. You love that about grandpa, that he had that working class thing going on, that what you see is what you get every man syndrome. You love that about him. I loved it about him. But she didn't like the way that um, he um, was a working class guy, I guess. We'll never know where Sue got her ideas about class. All we can say is that when Sue got an idea in her head, she fixated on it, and she wouldn't rest until she could convince the rest of her family that she was right, even if it was detrimental to everybody. And that wasn't totally her fault. She was, she was ill. And of course, she died from breast cancer. She was also in the Stony Brook University mental ward. Uh, they were treating her with the breast cancer and the, the mental stuff, and they diagnosed her with paranoid schizophrenia at the end. Fact nine, when it comes to Sue, 
Every story starts at the end. Fact 10. Later in life, Big Nick went to Wichita to live with Cindy's sister Pat and her husband Wayne. Now by this point, Big Nick was starting to have chronic health problems that left him in the hospital for extended periods. But to hear Marco's uncle Wayne and Aunt Pat tell it, you'd never have known there was anything wrong. I remember taking a cab to the hospital and I walked up in the hospital and I no more got into the hospital and in the corridor, opened up the stairway and there he was at the other end of the hallway just waiting for me, waving and smiling. When he got back, he was so sentimental and so gentle and so he was, he was just a loving, loving, loving person and he did not want to be a burden on anybody. And he wasn't. But Pat and Wayne knew the end was coming. And they were prepared. Or so they thought. He had enough money to be cremated, and he wanted to stay in Kansas. This is where more of the unfortunate drama comes in. In 1994, the morning after he left Cindy that voicemail, Big Nick died. I kind of took it from there, because I I think both your mother and, and Patty didn't really want to deal with Sue. Sue hadn't taken it well when she found out Big Nick wanted to be cremated. She went to a priest, and they she found out the laws on cremation were changed, but she didn't believe the priest, and she thought the devil was in charge of the priest, and this and that and the other thing. And... Cindy and Pat were already distraught over the loss of their father. So Uncle Wayne stepped in and tried to convince Sue to respect Big Nick's wishes. I called her back to start going through, this is what we got set up. We had the partition and everything set up, and and the cremation and everything was going to get set up. But Sue was adamant, adamant that, no, this can't happen. He has got to come back to New York. And this is where Wayne learned what the family had known for many, many years. Once Sue latched on to an idea, she was unstoppable. And she just went on and on saying, we are very wealthy, we can handle all this, you know, we can deal with all this, we just need to have him back here in New York. Um, and it, this went on for two days. Sue told Cindy a slightly different story. There was a CIA plot and they were after Daddy's body and she had to get a first. Fact 11, this is how Sue did it. She disoriented her family with wild accusations and contradictory facts until they were so overwhelmed that they just gave in. Fact 12, we'll never know what was actually going through Sue's mind when she demanded control of Big Nick's body. But we do know what happened next. We had him embalmed here, and then he was flowing to New York. And from that point, We lost 100% track of them. So, now we have all the facts. We know who we're looking for. We know who stole his body. We also know we can't ask that person what she did with it. But it turns out there is one person we can ask. Unfortunately, that person is Cousin Joseph. You don't fuck with me either, because I'll break you in half. Don't worry, we didn't fuck with him. But he definitely fucked with us. And a whole bunch of other people.
Family Ghosts will continue in a moment. So, when we last left Big Nick, his recently deceased body had been embalmed in Wichita, and then, at Sue's insistence, flown back to New York. And from that point, we lost 100% track of him. So this is where Joseph Spinelli comes in, who has all the information from that point on. Now, Cousin Joseph is a bit of a legendary figure in his own right. More than once during our interviews, he was referred to as the wacky Cousin Joseph. But Cindy also told us that Sue always liked Joseph. And we heard from both Cindy and Pat that Joseph was probably the only other person in the family who might know what actually happened to Big Nick. You really have to hear Joseph tell the story to get the whole picture. Understandably, Cindy and Pat were completely distraught in the aftermath of Big Nick's disappearance. They felt overwhelmed, but they knew that Sue had been in touch with Joseph. So they asked him to see what he could figure out. How do you know it was me? Because I'm walking around aimlessly like an asshole. Hey, Joseph, how are you? Step into our studio here. So... We're in a Dunkin' Donuts in Bayside, Queens. Joseph wouldn't meet us at his apartment because, well, it wasn't really clear. So we're in this Dunkin' Donuts. And he tells us that he lived in Tampa for a little while when Big Nick was living there with Cindy. He and Big Nick spent lots of time together. Nick and I went fishing every day, right? From time to time, there was this third guy who would show up at their favorite fishing spot. He would sit with his chair and a a book like this, full of all different kinds of fish. And he never caught nothing. But then, one day... He caught a blowfish, all right? And then he takes it out of the water and he puts it next to me, between me and him. And your grandfather said to me, Joe, get up and move your chair. Because that thing, if it's not in the water pretty soon, it's going to explode. Because it's a blowfish. You can't eat them. It's the only fish you can't eat. This guy sat there for 15 years and probably catches a fish and he can't eat it. It's going to blow up. And the next thing you know, it pops. And it blows over his gizzards all over him, right? It's unbelievable. Joseph told us every day with Big Nick was like this, happy. But eventually, Joseph left Florida, moved back to New York, and he lost touch with Big Nick, as well as the rest of the family. The next time Joseph hears anything about Big Nick, it's 1994. He gets a phone call from Sue informing him that Big Nick has died, and she'd like Joseph to attend his funeral. Joseph says, of course, he'll be there. But when he arrives, he instantly realizes something's not right. For starters, Cindy and Pat weren't there. They didn't even know it was happening. She's got a room with 300 chairs in it. And the only ones that are there, in the front row, I walk in, are her and Henry. And she greets me at the door with her rosary beads. And says, oh, it's so good of you to come to see Nick. And I look around the room and it's nobody there. There's not even flowers there. There's not any, there's no cards anywhere. Nothing. You know, and I sit down next to them. And I said to uh, Susan, so tell me how long, uh, no, no, no. We can't talk. We have to look at Nick. You think I'm going to stand here for an hour and a half until it closes and stare at Nick? So this whole time you're just sitting there in dead silence? Dead silence. Which is bizarre, okay? 
then the guy comes in and goes, it's 10 p.m. And I, and as a joke, I went, do you know where your children are? <laughs> and, and then that was, they did, Henry, he just gave me a look, and Susan went, oh, we have to be going. Let's go up to the coffin, and, and he'd say goodbye to Nick. At this point, Joseph is understandably puzzled. Before Joseph leaves, he asks Sue where the burial will be the next day. I said, so where is he going to be laid out? Well, I'll give you the information tomorrow. Well, why can't you give me the information now? No, we have to talk tomorrow. We can't talk in front of Nick. Why? Why can't we talk in front of Nick? You think Nick's going to care? The next day, Joseph gets to the funeral home where there's a mass in Big Nick's honor. There's a few more people in attendance, but still not many. Afterwards, Joseph climbs into the limousine with Sue, Henry, and Big Nick's body, assuming he'll ride with them to St. Mary's Cemetery, where he knows the family has a burial plot. But Sue has a different idea. I don't know if she did this out of spite. After the mass, she said to me, you know, you'll have to follow the limousine. Yeah, but I'm family. Shouldn't I go in the limousine with you and Henry? Oh, well, there were a couple of other people that friends of ours that went. So she says, they don't know how to get to the cemetery. You know, can they follow you? Sure. So Joseph walks back to his car and leads a caravan of funeral guests to St. Mary's Cemetery. They wait for Sue and Henry to arrive in the limousine. But Sue and Henry never show up. I went into the office and said... Listen, um, I'm here for the funeral of Nick, Nick, Nick Montalbano. And the girl said to me, there is no funeral of Nick Montalbano in the cemetery. Wait a minute. I, I said, it has to be. You've got to be wrong because I just had the wake last night in, in Gleason's. This is where the family plot is. What are you talking about? And she said, Joe, look, I'm going to be very honest with you. I'm looking through again, but I don't see anything. And that was it. Big Nick was gone. At this point, years pass. Joseph and others call Sue, demanding to know what she did with the body. Over and over again, Sue refuses to tell them. She sinks deeper and deeper into her illness. And eventually, Cindy reaches the point where it's too overwhelmingly sad to think about everything that's happened. So again, whenever I, if I were to bring up, you know, what happened with Grandpa and, you know, where's his body, my mom would, you know, ah, it's like, ah, it hurts my brain to think about it. Eventually, everyone in the family resigns themselves to this absurd reality that no one knows where Big Nick's body is. Finally, Joseph gets fed up and decides he's going to drive out to Sue and Henry's house in Center Mariches, which is a little town on the southern tier of Long Island. Marco used to visit Sue and Henry there in the summer when he was a kid, and he told us the house was odd. It's a nice house, but it's kind of creepy in a horror movie way. It's got a lot of religious imagery, statues and paintings and such. It's kind of like if you took like a dollhouse, one of the fancy ones with like nice china and lace curtaining and you just blew it up to a real sized house. When Joseph arrives at the house, he finds Sue and Henry seated on opposite sides of a huge dining room. And again, he's a little confused. 
And I said to Henry, why are we sitting so far away from each other? I don't have the plague. Oh, you know, Joe, um, not that many people ever come to visit us. Yeah, I can see why. Look where you had to sit. Joseph says they sit in silence for a while, punctuated by occasional whispered small talk from Sue, who's curled up in a ball in her chair, counting her rosary beads. Finally, Joseph can't stand it any longer. So I, I said, well, can I ask you a question? You know, the only reason I'm here is for, um, I'd like to know where is Nick buried? Oh, well, you know, certain things turn up, you know. There's, they can't be explained. So in other words, I'm going to come here for nothing. I'm not going to know. I, I can just tell you it's nearby. Nearby who? You or me? She goes, well, it's nearby. It's, it's, I, all I can tell you it's nearby, Joe. That's all I'm going to tell you. So you're not going to tell me where it is. And then, and you're still you're not going to tell me. Anything. I mean, you're talking about years already have passed, and you're still not going to say nothing. When I were left there, I'm never coming back here. And when I do come back here, if I find out that there's any foul play or anything, I'm coming to get you two goons and I'm going to put you in a banana truck, okay? Fact 13. The banana truck gambit failed. Joseph left Sue and Henry's knowing nothing more than when he got there. If he's our best hope of finding Big Nick, our prospects are starting to look a little bleak. But then, Joseph tells us that his friend Leo died recently. And while Joseph's at Leo's funeral at St. Raymond's Cemetery in the Bronx, Joseph's finely tuned investigative instincts kick in. Something, he can't say what it is, but something tells him Big Nick might be buried here as well. Could this be where Sue and Henry went instead of St. Mary's on the day of the funeral back in 1994. So we do the service, and I go to the office, and I said, listen, by chance, and this is just a needle in a haystack, is there a possibility that there's a Nicholas Montalbano here? And she shows me the spot, and I'm like, come on. So sure enough, somebody comes, he gets in my car, tells me how to get there, stops in front of this spot, you know, I get out, there's a little marker with his name on it. Joseph finishes his story, we buy him a 32-ounce iced latte, and Marco, producer Jason DeLeon, and I go barreling out of the Dunkin' Donuts at top speed. We've done it! We, or rather Joseph, have found Big Nick's body. Jason and I get to work arranging logistics for a trip to the Bronx to record Marco, finally visiting his grandfather's body at St. Raymond's. And Marco gets in touch with his mom to let her know that the nightmare is finally over. Her father is safely in the ground, and at long last, we know where to find the exact spot containing his blessed remains. The next day at the office, I'm winding microphone cables and stuffing gear into my backpack for the trip to St. Raymond's when I get a text from Marco. And as I mentioned earlier, at this point, I'm pretty accustomed to doing a double take whenever I get a text from Marco. This one is no different. The text is a screenshot followed by two words. Call me. So what's happening? So that is a text from from Aunt Pat uh, informing me that uh, Mom 
um, because of curiosity and all the you know stuff that's been going on. I guess did an internet search of everybody buried at St. Raymond's. She did it last night, and she didn't find any um, mention of Grandpa, nobody with that name. So I guess my aunt is taking that to now she is questioning the authenticity and legitimacy of this information from Cousin Joseph. Wait, wait, so, wait, hold, hold, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me just make sure I understand what you're telling me. So, so did, you told your mom what we heard from Cousin Joseph. Correct. And she did a search of St. Raymond's for burial sites matching Nicholas Montalbano. Yes. And nothing came up? Correct. That's, yeah. Uh-huh. What in the world? <laughs> Hi, is this uh, St. Raymond's? Yes. Hi, um, my name's Sam, and um, I'm, I'm trying to find out if you have someone uh, buried in your cemetery. What's the last name? The last name is Montalbano. M-O-N. Yeah, M-O-N. T-A-L-B-A-N-O. First name? Should be uh, either Nick or Nicholas. I have a Nicholas from... 1965. 1965 is is when he would have been buried there? That's the Nicholas that I have, yes. Oh, okay. I, I think that's actually not the one that we're looking for. And so this became one of the few stories you'll ever hear with a literal plot twist. Hey, Joe, it's Nick. Hey, Nick. Hey, how you doing? Oh, Nick. I'm oh, sorry, man. I'm a little fucked up. Listen to me. You're going to have to have your friends hold back. At this point, you're probably asking yourself why on earth we're on the phone with Joseph again. The idea was to read him the riot act for not taking the time to verify that he'd found the right Nicholas Montalbano. What kind of detective is he? All right, so so the, the aforementioned friends, they're, they're on the line. Sam and Jason are, are on the phone. Say hi. Right. Hey, hey, Joseph, how's it going? Hey, how are you? Yeah, how you doing, guys? But just when we're about to start haranguing him... All right, so this is the story. You heard the story. That the Nicholas Montalbano that's in St. Raymond isn't his grandfather. Right. So now I'm, I'm, when I heard that, I said, oh, my God, I'm so... Oh, I was twisted like you'd never believe. This, I just got back an hour ago. I went to Henry's house in Sayville. All right? You did? Yes. This morning. This fucking guy. Yet again, Joseph's methods may be questionable, but his instinct is actually spot on. Why in the world didn't we think to get in touch with Henry, Sue's ex-husband, who's possibly still alive, and would actually know all of the answers to all of our questions? What kind of podcasters are we? So what happened when you went there? Well, there was nothing, nobody there. There was nobody there. And I and some guy was walking in the street, you know, walking down the road and he and I was in the driveway, so he walked over to me and I said, Can I help you with something? He says, Yeah, can I ask you why you're here? I said, Police business. That's what I told him. I said, What what is it to you? He said, Well, I, you know, I, I said, You live in the neighborhood? He goes, Yeah, I live in the neighborhood. I said, Are you watching the house? He goes, No. I said, Then what the hell are you doing walking in the driveway looking at me for that? So <laughs> So wait, wait. 
so the, did the house look like no one was home at the time, or like the house was abandoned? No one lived no, there. No, it doesn't look like anyone's living there. So, we've got another missing family member on our hands. Why do they always have to be the ones with the exact information we need? We did everything we could think of to find Henry. We called the most recent phone number the family has for him. We sent emails to the last place we know he worked. We found as many people as we could on Facebook with the same last name as him and sent them all messages. We even found people who used to have the same last name as him and then changed it after they got married and sent them messages too. Producer Jason DeLeon dug through tax records trying to find property that Henry owns. Finally, we got a response from Henry's sister-in-law who asked us why we wanted to talk to Henry. And when we said it was for a story about Sue... She stopped replying. Maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Aunt Pat told us that by the end, Henry would had enough. When we went to Sue's funeral, the family, Henry's family, um, didn't talk ill of Sue, but they were relieved. They said this to us. They were relieved that they got their brother and son back because Sue wouldn't let Henry see um, his family. If Henry's still around, he doesn't seem to want to be found. And it's starting to seem like Big Nick doesn't either. Family Ghosts will continue right after this. Hello, Ghost Family. Our story will continue in just a moment. But first, if you're a fan of our show, there's a good chance you're interested in characters who seem to have almost single-handedly changed the course of history. So I wanted to take just a moment to tell you about another show that I love called Historical Figures. This podcast is all about characters like that, people whose names and accomplishments you could probably tick off, but whose actual personalities you've maybe never thought about. This is a show about why they took action to change the world and how they made their goals a reality or the things they failed at along the way. It's a journey through famous lives, showing you what their childhood and personalities were like, recounting the stories of their friendships, financial struggles, and it really gives the listener a sense of what motivated them to leave a mark on history. The hosts work with a team of researchers to provide little-known facts every episode, with new episodes released every Wednesday. Check out their episodes on Albert Einstein, Marco Polo, and Queen Victoria, which are all available right now. Visit Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory and search for historical figures. Again, that's historical figures. Or visit parcast.com slash history to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com slash history to listen now. Fact 14. We're back to where we started. Number of dead grandfathers located? Zero. Number of meaningful leads as to location of said grandfather? Zero. Marco and I sat down and tried to figure out how to proceed. We realized there was one last thread to pull on. Like in The Princess Bride, we go back to the beginning. Gleason's funeral home, where the memorial service was held. This is the last place that we know 
your grandfather's body definitely was. Yes. This is the place where your Aunt Sue had that hastily arranged kind of memorial service. Yep. Set for 300, but attended by only four. Super creepy. Yep. So, we make a new plan. We're going to call Gleason's funeral home and arrange an interview. We'll have them walk us through what would have happened on the day of Big Nick's funeral. We'll retrace the body's final movements, step by step, and see if we can make an educated guess as to where it would have gone after the coffin was loaded into that Gleason's hearse. Gleason's Funeral Home, can I help you? Hi, uh, my name's Sam Dingman, and I called yesterday about the possibility of coming in today to do um, a radio interview. Hold on one second, okay? Thank you. Yeah, hi, how you doing? Hi, how's it going? Good, good. Um, so, uh, you know, he's buried in Woodlawn Cemetery. Oh. You, you, yeah. were, you were able to confirm that? Yeah, I called Woodlawn this morning, and that's what they told me. Oh. Um, that's amazing. Thank you very much. You're welcome. No problem. Fact 15. The speed with which producer Jason DeLeon and myself sprinted to my Toyota Corolla to make the drive to Woodlawn Cemetery was, frankly, embarrassing. So, as it was finally explained to us by a gentle, even-keeled old funeral director in a dark suit with an earth-toned tie who didn't want to be recorded, this is what happened. In 1994, for reasons we will never know, Sue brought Big Nick to Woodlawn Cemetery in Bronx, New York. She asked if she could rent something called a receiving mausoleum, which is apparently where cemeteries put the bodies of people who have a lot of money and whose families are building them an above-ground mausoleum on the family plot. They're intended to be a temporary solution until a more formal burial can be arranged at the newly decked-out gravesite. Since they're used for multiple bodies at once, and generally only for short-term stays, Woodlawn charges way less than the price for an actual burial plot to house the departed in receiving mausoleums. And that is apparently what appealed to Sue on that cool October afternoon. The man in the earth tone tie showed us the receipt for her deposit of $267 on October 19, 1994, good for three months of storage for her father's body. And then she walked out the door and never came back. Big Nick sat in the receiving mausoleum for three years, accumulating dust and unpaid rent bills until someone at Woodlawn was doing an audit of the vault and noticed there was an unclaimed body. And at this point, things could have gone very badly. The same Woodlawn representative told us that it's not uncommon for wayward corpses to be cremated, boxed up, stuffed in a closet, and forgotten about. But someone at Woodlawn chose this moment to do the old man a solid. They found an empty plot in a shady corner of the cemetery called Sylvan Dell, grave number 196, according to the document we were shown, and quietly buried Big Nick there. He's been resting comfortably for 20 years, unmarked and undisturbed. Until today. Is that it? I see what I see what looks like a fresh marker. Oh yeah. 
See that little green stake? Oh. If that is, he's got his own little patch. He's got space to to roam. Hey, look at that. Found my grandpa. Under the shade of an oak tree, just past the employee parking lot, we find a soft, mossy patch of land with a shiny green stake in it and a neatly printed label reading Nicholas Montalbano. The right one this time. Someone at Woodlawn heard we were coming today and wanted us to know we'd finally found him. Having finally reached the end of a long and winding road, we asked Marco how he was feeling about this whole adventure. I feel a lot closer to my mom because my pain initially and my joy now is, is minor, and, and I hope that this has been a, some measure of relief for her. Unfortunately, it hasn't. What exactly did these people tell you? We buried him for free out of the kindness of our hearts? Cindy's not convinced. The nice man at Woodlawn was noncommittal when we asked if the family would be liable for back rent on Big Nick's plot, which comes to something on the order of $17,000. My father, I think we told you, had enough money for what he wanted cremation to stay in Kansas and would have been done. Pat would have been there with him in Kansas this whole time with the ashes and the whole bit. and the, You know, no questions on where he is all this time and what happened and who owes $17,000. So it, it just kind of feels like Sue reaching out from beyond the grave to irritate me one more time. And I hate to say it like that. <laughs> but I've been thinking about it. <laughs> and it's just bizarre. So, case not exactly closed. But producer Jason DeLeon and I were able to pull the audio off that old microcassette tape. So, we got on the phone with Cindy one more time. Hi! How's it going? Finer than frog hair, you? And for the first time in 23 years, she heard the voicemail. Wednesday, 10.09 a.m. Cindy! Cindy, this is Dad. I love you, Cindy. I love you very much. And I love Pat very, very much. Yeah, thank you again, okay? And I love you. Okay, baby. Be good. Well, you know, I had forgotten how, uh, probably purposely, how weak his voice was and that he didn't really sound much like the real him. Because I knew him when he was a young man, right? And, uh, and he was the one who uh, told me he would get all uh, the fish out of the sea for me when we went to the beach because I was scared of them touching me, and I believed them either. Cindy told us the recording she really wishes she could find is from 1984. It's of Big Nick at a party after he retired in his mid-60s. Someone happened to bring a video camera. He's doing some yard work there and filming him, and he's like, oh, look what my wife got me into at 64 years old. Oh, this is the yard work is full of shit. I can't stand this. <laughs> that's, what, that's what you want to see, right? We were so convinced we'd found Cindy's father in Woodlawn Cemetery. But as we talked to her, we realized the guy we found, that's not really Cindy's dad. She had to bury that guy a long time ago. 
Case closed. But Cindy does have one last bone to pick with Marco. I hate to bring up stuff I like to blame you for, Nick, but do you remember when you had that uh, sixth grade project or fifth grade project where they said, bring in your favorite family photos? Cindy gave Marco a series of photos she's always treasured. Her mom and Big Nick and Marco, arms around each other, decked out in their finest Christmas attire. And I said, yeah, make sure I get them back. <laughs> Do you remember No, that? I don't remember this. No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, I never got them back. <laughs> oh. I think that was my favorite photograph of all time. But don't worry about it. <laughs> Well, why, why did you give it to the 10-year-old? Like, who, tr- who trusts that kid? I wouldn't. It was part of your, your, your forgetfulness thing. Well, Sam, now we have good news. And for the next season, since you've proven to be a master investigator who can find things, you can embark on the case of the missing family photos from, uh, <laughs> from, when, I, from when I was 11. Yeah, part two is we can track down those photos. <laughs> Well, I, I would be happy to do that. I'm on the case. But isn't it comforting to know that um, we have Master Detective Joseph Spinelli on speed dial? Oh, my God. <laughs> Family Ghosts is hosted and produced by me, Sam Dingman with Verilyn Williams, Odelia Rubin, and Five Sauce de Leon. Our story editor is Michaela Bly. Our show features original music by Luis Guerra, and our show art is by Paul Glankler. Our managing producer is Mia Lobel, and Andy Bowers is Panoply's chief content officer. Special thanks to Jennifer Trowbridge, Jason Gambrell, Evan Viola, and Lily Tyson. Find our show on Twitter and Instagram at FamGoShow. That's F-A-M-G-H-O show. To join our mailing list or just to say hello, email us at familyghosts at panoply.fm. Thank you for listening, ghost family, and may your Thanksgiving tables be filled with great stories. Next time on Family Ghosts. Austin Riddick was black as coal and mean as a snake. The story of the crazy man from Mississippi. And he grabbed an axe from the basement and went upstairs to kill everybody in the house. And Austin's impact on the Riddick family. She jumped out a second floor window and went from house to house in her nightclothes trying to get help. All that and more next week on the show. <laughs>